Hi there, and welcome back to the Reluctant Psalm Podcast with Christopher. It's been quite a while since I've made a podcast. This is uh, episode 17, and I think it's been almost a year, so clearly falling behind my original goal, Uh, but that's okay. A lot of uh, stuff has come up in life. So to get you guys caught up, this is episode one of the Heartbreak Psalm series. Uh, The Heartbreak Psalm series is going to be a series where I discuss uh, some recent uh, developments that have gone on. Uh, so the uh, information that you'll hear in this podcast uh, will be uh, some information on uh, my open heart surgery. So for anybody listening, um, I didn't mention anything about it before, wasn't sure how it was going to go. Um, you know, it was probably going to go fine anyways, but just in case I kind of uh, kept it a little under the radar. Um, but everything went great and I feel good. I, I feel healthy. It's been a uh, a little over a month now since I uh, had the procedure. I'm sorry, surgery. So um, before that, I also wasn't posting a lot of podcasts because I was pretty inundated at work with uh, with some recent developments. Uh, so I think since my last podcast, I went from a wine director or psalm or whatever title you want to give me at the restaurant I was in charge of the wine uh, to now uh, beverage director and restaurant manager. Um, so again, it's a Japanese restaurant. So, uh, keeping that in mind, trying to keep, uh, wines that will pair with the cuisine. Uh, there's also several options of Wagyu available, like there tends to be at many, uh, high-end Japanese restaurants. So, um, along with the, uh, you know, traditional white wines that you would pair with Japanese cuisine or some more esoteric wines, uh, you can kind of get a little bit more into like the Napa Cab, which is great because, you know, a lot of people come to San Francisco and, that's what they want to drink. They want to drink Napa Cab. They want to drink Sonoma Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays because you know what? They're here and they're close enough to wine country uh, that they are drawn to that. So it's nice that there's at least a balance on the menu. It's not 100% seafood. So um, I was asked to put together a wine list uh, for the place that I was working at. There was only about 20 wines by the bottle or 25 wines by the bottle. Uh, Now we're sitting at 110 wines by the bottle. Uh, including our wines by the glass. And the list is really good, and it seems to be selling well. Um, we've switched back to physical menus, which after COVID is is a, a new development. As everybody kind of moved to QR codes and everything like that, it made everybody's lives a little easier. Um, we didn't have to print a bunch of menus. Uh, but that being said, it's kind of hard to look at 110 different offerings of wine on your phone. So... Uh, <clears throat> It was, it's really great. We printed out the menu. It seems to be working really well. Um, before I took the position of beverage manager and restaurant manager, I did make uh, the ownership aware that I was going to have um, open heart surgery. So to kind of update you on that, um, about a year ago, I went to the doctor and I did an EKG of my heart. I lost my father. Uh, he was at, at the age of 55 when he passed. And so I just wanted to check up, see what was going on. They said it was either a heart attack or a stroke. So I went to the doctor. He said, how's everything going? I said, fine. He says, what are you here for? And I said, well, you know, you're just my new doctor. I haven't met you yet, but I was thinking about checking on my heart. He said, have you ever done an EKG? Nope. So I went in, I did an EKG, and uh, then they called me and they said, hey, we just want to let you know you were born with a bicuspid aortic valve instead of a tricuspid aortic valve. So essentially you're picture your heart, an anatomical heart, not like a heart drawing. And at the very top of your heart uh, is the aorta, the ascending aorta, and it turns into like a bit of a candy cane. It goes ascending aorta, arching aorta to descending aorta. So basically a candy cane. Well, the valve that opens up from the heart into the aorta uh, is your your, uh, aortic valve. Um, most people have a tricuspid, which it kind of looks like a Mercedes symbol and it opens up into three little like leaves. And I was born with bicuspid, which is pretty common. One to 2% of the population has it. Um, not everybody, uh, suffers the side effects of it. Uh, they're still doing some genetic investigation to figure out if it's a, you know, an anomaly that goes on or if it is actually hereditary, uh, that it can cause an aneurysm. So I had quite a large aneurysm on the outside of my uh, aortic valve in my ascending aorta. So essentially, the candy cane goes up and it comes down. Well, right where it starts to go up is right where I had the aneurysm. So um, 
I had to uh, go in and have surgery. So went in for open heart surgery, um, sawed me open. I woke up, you know, eight hours later, nine hours later. Um, wasn't really feeling too hot. Uh, but all along the way before the surgery, I had a lot of fun. It's really great. I got to spend a lot of time with a lot of important people. Um, I got to spend time with people afterwards as well. Uh, so that's really nice. And currently I'm on, uh, you know, just laid up. I'm on disability. I'm recovering from the surgery for the next couple months. So uh, I plan on nailing a few more uh, podcasts. Um, so kind of the idea behind this podcast is what to what wines to drink before and after open heart surgery. So, uh, uh, you know, in about seven or eight weeks, I'll be returning to work and I'll have kind of a little bit more of a regular schedule uh, between work and tasting wine. Uh, but you know, before I left, I tried to capitalize on it as much as possible. Had a few trips planned with a couple people um, and had a great time. We went up to Sonoma one time. We went to Napa. Um, you know, in general, it's it's really amazing to be in the Bay Area, be so close to the wineries um, and, and have the opportunity to visit as well as be in the industry because they generally um, take care of us. You know, they'll they'll take care of a tasting or something like that. It's an industry uh, perk, you know, they want you to learn about their wine, so you start to sell their wine. That's kind of the uh, trade, if you will. Um, so, you know, I I've picked a lot of wines for the list, and I've picked a lot of wines uh, wineries that I wanted to go to. But as I was picking for the list, I ran into several kind of difficulties uh, in choosing the wine list. So, you know, I was asked to put together a wine list with about a hundred offerings by the bottle. Um, and then I was asked to put certain things on, you know, certain wines on maybe wines that I'm not a huge fan of, but, you know, I have to kind of set my pride aside and put those wines on the list. And then, you know, I have so many wines that I love and so many favorite winery, you know, quote unquote, favorite winery. You can't see my air quotes right now, but I'm air quoting. And, um, you know, it's really hard to, to scale down. So initially I wrote down just ballpark ideas brainstormed about 160 wineries and then kind of had to trim down from there and then get into, you know, obviously which wines to carry and things like that. You know, um, being in the Bay Area, being a Japanese restaurant and being in the financial district of San Francisco, we get a lot of business travel. And sometimes those guys will come in from other countries. They want Napa cabs, Napa Bordeaux blends, Napa shards, Sonoma shards, Sonoma pinots. So, Clearly, the list has to be decorated with that. Um, you know, that being said, Chardonnay doesn't do awful with Japanese cuisine. Neither does Pinot Noir, neither does Cabernet or uh, Cabernet, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Bordeaux blends from, from California. So it's just about fitting the right pieces in the right places. You know, there's plenty of um, amazing wineries that I'd like to carry, amazing wineries that I'd like to represent on the list. But at the end of the day, you kind of have to just pick your favorite child, if you will. And this won't be the last list that I design. Um, ideally, uh, it won't be the last list I put together and the last time I'm putting wines on the menu. And certainly it's not set in stone. The wine list can change at any time for any reason. Uh, so just kind of the first iteration of the menu, if you will. Um, I can move into some of my favorite wines after. So, so sometimes it's about setting your pride aside and putting together a good list for the restaurant, not necessarily for myself. And speaking of pride, uh, let's get into the uh, wine trips that I went on. Uh, pride Mountain is one of them, hence the uh, little plug there. So I went on two trips before my open heart surgery. Uh, one I went on a couple months before. Uh, we went to Sonoma, stayed in Sonoma. We went to Hanzel Winery. I really love Hanzel Winery. The first time I tried it was here in San Francisco, uh, there was a restaurant that was pouring their Pinot Noir by the glass, and I tried it, and I just knew that it was really high quality, and I thought, there's no way this wine can be by the glass. It's just it's just really, really delicious. So come to find out, it is. Uh, so Hanzel is a winery that was founded in 1953. Uh, they're on the south end of the Mayacamas in Sonoma, um, the Mayacamas Mountains in Sonoma, and they were some of the first people to plant Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and try to really focus on Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. There was a few, you know, 100 acres planted in the area at the time, but it wasn't a big deal. Um, so uh, 
the winery itself is is really a beautiful winery. It's kind of set back into the hillside. You go up a really big windy road to get there. That's very romantic. Uh, the team is incredibly friendly, um, and they make a lot of different skews, primarily focusing on Cabernet and Chardonnay still to this day, uh, just like they did in 1953. Um, but they also produce some Cabernets and stuff now. Well, the, the Pinot Noir that I had by the glass was uh, the Sabella. Sabella is a wine uh, that's made by Hansel in both Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. It's for on-premise consumption only. So uh, they sell to restaurants generally. Not to say you wouldn't see it in retail. I'm sure some of it gets there somehow. Not to say you couldn't order it online. I'm not sure if you could or not. Uh, but it's a little bit of a, a lesser expensive Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And that being said, most of their Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays are not incredibly expensive. And they're not inexpensive either. You're looking at probably 20-something a bottle. Let's say 25 to $28 a bottle uh, for just kind of the Sonoma Pinot Noir, Sonoma Chardonnay. But they're exceptional wines, and they're they're really, really well worth it. So being in the industry, I called in some contacts, and I said, hey, I'd love to go to Sonoma. I'd love to visit Hanzel. You think it's possible? My sales rep um, put in a call for me and said, sure, we'll get you there. Well, come to find out they're actually closed on the day that we went up. And I thought, well, I don't know who's going to taste with us. So we show up to Hanzel and standing there waiting for us in uh, – uh, jeans uh, with uh, rattlesnake guards, which if you're not familiar with rattlesnake guards, they're kind of like shin guards in soccer, uh, but they wrap all the way around and they're thick to prevent rattlesnakes from biting your legs when you're walking through the vineyards. Um, uh, so standing there in rattlesnake guards uh, is Jason Jardine. Uh, Jason Jardine is the president and director of winemaking at Hansel. He's been there since uh, 2014 a really, really incredibly talented individual that I um, am familiar with uh, from his time at um, Claude Duval, Domaine Serene. I kind of knew his name from those wineries, uh, but I did a little more research into him. He actually interned uh, at Robert Mondavi at the age of 21, uh, and he managed the vineyards at Soder, which is a really awesome winery up in uh, Oregon, and also helped uh, Flowers Winery and Reese Winery uh, become fully biodynamic here in California. And then he was also the winemaker at Clodeval and the winemaker at Domaine Serene. Um, and really his kind of approach to winemaking is awesome. So uh, not to say that he's the first to do it, but he's definitely one of the pioneers here in the area uh, that's that's really kind of pushing for this. Um, he has animals on the property. He's planting a lot of cover crop on the soil. So in between the vineyards, um, in between the vines is a lot of just open soil. So what a lot of people do is plant stuff there and it kind of helps prevent um, the soil from getting too dried out. Sometimes you plant crops there and you kind of just let them die there and it adds nutrients to the soil. Um, and sometimes it's good to just kind of plant stuff there so other weeds and stuff like that don't grow. Uh, so we go, he's planted fava beans between the vineyards um, we get to taste some of the fava beans just right off the vine. They're really delicious. Um, it's just a great experience. He's a really down-to-earth guy, um, uh, very successful vegan, uh, which is, uh, you know, not to say uh, rare, but uh, certainly interesting. And um, he uh, is very well-educated, incredibly well-educated in everything that he does. He's a very passionate individual, and it was really an amazing opportunity uh, to meet him, taste with him, just kind of sit there and have a chat with him. Um, and, you know, funny funny story, I actually get out of the car and I saw, I looked him up before I got there um, just to figure out who the winemaker was. And I was really excited and I just kept calling him Justin, Justin, Justin. I called him Justin like six times. I introduced him as Justin uh, to my friends that were with me. And he was so incredibly polite that he didn't say anything. And then uh, finally, I think he gave me his uh, his business card on the way out, and I got in the car, and I was so excited, and I looked down at this card, and I see that it's Jason. So uh, for anybody that's uh, going to Hansel or, or planning on drinking some Hansel, uh, remember, it's Jason Jardine, not Justin Jardine. Stupid, uh, stupid Chris. I, I messed that one up. But uh, again, incredibly polite uh, guy. He's really, really wonderful, and Hinzel is an incredible winery if you have the opportunity to go there. Um, they're uh, open to the public. Uh, their wine club is really cool. He's trying to uh, practice with some 
um, interesting wines. In a lot of places, wine clubs are just pretty straightforward. It's kind of their flagship wines. They send it out every quarter, every six months, or once a year, or whatever. Um, just the wines that they're known for. And what he's actually going to try to do is um, focus on having the wine club be something that's uh, new and exciting. So every three months, you're getting something that's like really, really kind of interesting and kind of fresh to market. So um, go try out Hansel. Uh, and then, so on the same trip, we uh, did a, a little drive over to Hendry. Um, and Hendry Winery is actually in Napa. Uh, they've been growing grapes since 1939, uh, which is one of the oldest estates uh, to be growing grapes. Um, they have 203 acres uh, at the foot of Mount Veter, um, and they only have 114 planted, which is kind of interesting. They don't have uh, uh, more planted. Um, I mean, they certainly have the land, but I think it's not always about making as much money as possible sometimes. And I, and it's really nice to see that. Um, similarly with Hanzel, they certainly don't have every acre that they have available planted. Uh, but to think that uh, Hendry has almost one half of what they own planted and the other half unplanted uh, is really um, amazing. Uh, so Hendry's pretty well known for their Zinfandels and their Cabernets, um, but we got to try a lot of stuff when we went. We rolled up uh, the, um, it's COVID, so a lot of people have been moved around and restructured, and the lady that was actually working the tasting room that day was the um, uh, one of the national ambassadors for Hendry. Um, very sweet lady, and it was great because she's a wealth of knowledge. It wasn't somebody where it's a part-time job where they just roll up and pour you wine Here's Pinot Noir. Enjoy. Here's Rosé. Enjoy. Uh, she's very passionate and incredibly well-educated, and she's been with the company for quite a long time. Um, some of the wines that we got to try were the Albarino, which I had heard tell that they have a really delicious Albarino. Um, Albarino, for anybody that doesn't know, is a grape that isn't exclusively grown in, but is, is very well known for being grown in Spain. Uh, generally it has like a nice level of salinity. So a little bit of like a saltiness, a little bit of like a lemon or lime, uh, kind of tartness, a little bit of a sourness to it. Um, normally a little more minerality forward, uh, not a ton of, uh, tropical fruit or anything like that. Normally a really nice, uh, easy drinking wine. Albarino is a slam dunk pairing for seafood. Uh, so it was really amazing to have the opportunity to taste Hendry's Albarino, which I've heard so much about. Really, really incredible. I, I had my hesitation thinking that in Napa they were growing Albarino because, I mean, I've never been to Spain, so I don't know what the wine-growing region is like in Spain, uh, but I do know that uh, I would think that there would be a little bit more coastal influence uh, given that it's somewhat of a peninsula. Uh, but the wine is really, really exceptional. And uh, again, I'm always very excited to be surprised and very excited to be wrong about things. We also got to try two different expressions of Chardonnay, which was really fun, an unoaked Chardonnay and a barrel fermented Chardonnay. So two different approaches, two different style shards. Uh, we get to try their Primitivo. Primitivo and Zinfandel are uh, very similar. I'd, I would say that most people consider them to be the same thing now. I think sometimes the disagreement that's been going on is the, the clonal selections. Primitivo um, is a grape from southern Italy, uh, which has always been called Primitivo, and then after extensive genetic testing was found out that it's Zinfandel. Um, so when people are bottling Primitivo and selling Primitivo, I'm not sure if it's just because they can, because there's no regulation, or if it's a clonal thing. I'm not really sure, but again, Hendry is known for their Zinfandels. They have three or four different Zins, and then they also have a Primitivo. So that's kind of fun. They're, they're giving it a different distinction. It's not just another Zin. So uh, I think it's made a little bit more in an old world style, hence the name Primitivo, Italy being an old world uh, wine producing region. Got to taste some of their Zins. There was one that was called like 3 and 27 lot or lot 3 and lot 27. Um, a lot of really great stuff. Their cabs are amazing. They have a 2005 cab that you can buy right now, or maybe it's a six. And it was incredible. It was still showing so well, uh, considering that it's a 16 year old wine. It was Really, really, really awesome. And then I got to try a grape that I've never had before, ever in my life. And I wasn't familiar with it. I was, was um, not familiar with it at all. 
The grape is mission. Um, mission grape is really interesting. Uh, apparently, it got its name because it was one of the first grapes that the Spanish conquistadors were planting uh, when they were setting up all of the missions. Um, so that's kind of where it comes from. And the lineup of the tasting, we had the mission right after we had Pinot Noir. So it was a little bit more of a, uh, a lighter style wine, um, slightly heavier than, let's say, a light Pinot Noir, um, but really, really exceptional, really fun and interesting. And they only make one barrel, which is, uh, I think it works out to 54 cases or something like that of mission. And so I grabbed a bottle and I'll hold on to it for a while and see how it turns out. Um, not that I expect it to be an incredible aging wine, but, you know, just to have to pull out every now and then and just kind of have some fun. I have some weird, geeky, kind of more esoteric stuff like that. Um, so, you know, we drank a lot of wine. We went to dinner. We drank wine. We brought wine up. We went to stores and bought wine uh, retail. And, you know, we went to lunch and drank wine. We kind of went all over the place when we were in Sonoma and drank a lot of wine. But those are the two wineries that we visited, uh, as well as Good Luck Bunchu, which was a lot of fun. Um, don't have as many notes on Good Luck Bunchu. It was pretty early in the day. Uh, so, you know, uh, kind of got drowned out by the amazing experience at Hansel and Hendry. Um, but besides all of the amazing wines that we drank, it was, it was just really great to get up there. Uh, and it made me kind of miss it. So then, you know, the next time I was talking to another coworker of mine, and she said that she was interested. She was trying to go to Spotswood. I said, I'd love to go. So a couple weeks later, I mean, I guess like a month later, a few weeks before my surgery, let's say. My surgery was July 6th, to, just to give you a timeline. So when we went to Hansel and Hendry, the vines, there was already bud break. And then when we went to um, uh, Napa again, um, it was grapes were actually starting to form on the vine. So it's nice to go throughout the season, kind of see how the fruit is developing in different areas. It was really amazing. It's one of the first times that I've done that. I've gone up to wineries before, but haven't really paid that much attention. When we went to Italy, it was so busy because everybody was harvesting. And so you weren't really allowed in the vineyard. So I wasn't able to see the grapes necessarily. I could see them from the car, let's say, but I couldn't like go in the vineyards and, and look at them. So you know, it was, it's really, really cool to be able to go and see kind of the development of everything. Uh, so we go to Spotswood. Um, and before we go, I started watching Psalm TV at the uh, recommendation of a friend of mine. And uh, Psalm TV, for anybody that doesn't know, S-O-M-M TV uh, is a streaming app. Uh, if you've ever heard of the movie Psalm, um, it's made by the same people, I think, or whatever, maybe it's not, but you can get all three Psalm movies on there. But besides that, they have a lot of really great shows and segments and other movies, and they have a lot of, a lot of information. It's become one of my hobbies now just to watch Psalm TV. They have five minute episodes, 10 minute episodes, 30 minute episodes, one and a half hour movies, two hour movies. They have everything and they have, you know, blind tasting and then they have educational things and they have people drinking old wine and they have videos of people pairing wines with certain foods. So if you want to learn, obviously, besides my podcast, uh, the Psalm TV has a lot of really, really amazing resources as well. Uh, and they have video capabilities, which I do not have as of yet. So, uh, I would highly recommend, uh, watching that. So before we went to Spotswood, sorry, long story short, before we went to Spotswood, I watched the episode on Spotswood that's on Psalm TV. And it was really amazing because when we went there, I was able to actually put faces uh, to the names. And obviously I was watching a video, so I saw their faces as well. But it was really amazing to see these people on TV. I know it's an app, it's a streaming app, but see them and listen to them tell their story and then go there and actually meet them. It was really, really a special experience. Uh, Spotswood, for anybody that doesn't know, has been around since 1972. Um, they are incredibly well known for their Cabernets. Their Cabernets have been slam dunks. The first 100 point wine I ever had, 100 point being a, a rating system that's put in place by magazines and wine reviewing people and wine reviewing companies, um, was a 2010 Spotswood Cabernet. So I've had their wines before. 
have always been really impressed with their wines. And where I was somming before COVID, he was pouring uh, the Spotswood Sauvignon Blanc by the glass. And I always thought it was really, really delicious. And I, I don't think that I ever really made the connection because the Cabernets can generally be hundreds of dollars a bottle. Uh, I think the cheapest one I ever saw on a menu was 220 or 225 or 300 or something. Um, it could be wrong. Let's say 180 up at the bare minimum. Um, but the Sauvignon Blancs are way more affordable. And then those are the only two wines I've ever heard about from them. Not to say that they don't grow other grapes, but those are the three wine. There's those are the two grapes that are kind of more predominant in the market. So, anyways, we went and uh, we got a, a, an amazing tour of the um, the barrel room. We they were cleaning barrels, which is a really great thing that I've never seen before. Uh, they essentially get a large steaming gun and put it inside of the barrel and steam the insides of the barrels to kill the bacteria. Uh, that was really cool to watch. Um, but they were in full progress while we were there. They were just rolling. So um, we didn't want to get too much in the way. Uh, but but it was really nice to kind of go on a tour, go walk through and everything. Um, so uh, Beth Novak Milliken and uh, Lindy, no- Lindy Novak are the daughters of Mary Novak. Um, so those two daughters are actually running the estate right now. Uh, Mary Novak has since passed, but she loved Sauvignon Blanc. And so that's the entire reason that they have Sauvignon Blanc. They planted it for, uh, for her, is what they say. Um, so the wines that we got to try was the 2020 Sauvignon Blanc. Um, they added 3% Semillon, which uh, is an interesting grape that comes out of Bordeaux. I uh, generally used in Bordeaux blends. Um, used in Sauternes, uh, which is a dessert-style wine. Uh, it's generally used as a blending grape. Um, and you don't really see it a lot from New World producers besides small percentages. But on occasion, you'll see a rare bottle here and there of semi-on-dominant wines. Um, it adds a little longevity to the wine. It also adds a little bit more of a, a richness to the wine. Uh, so 3% is just kind of a nice little dash, if you will. What makes this Sauvignon Blanc really interesting is most people are doing all of their fermentation in stainless steel tanks right now, which is fine. Doesn't doesn't take anything away from the wine. Um, it just kind of controls how the wine develops. Uh, but what they're doing here is they're actually aging the Sauvignon Blanc uh, in multiple um, storage apparatus uh, to create a little bit more of complexity to the wine. They have a clay pot. They have a ceramic pot, and I say a pot, but I stood in front of this thing. It had to be eight feet high, and it's like a giant egg, and they're aging the wine in there. So they have one made from clay. They have one made from ceramic. They have stainless steel, obviously. They have oak barrels as well. So what they're doing is is they're aging the wine in all of these different things, and then they're blending it together at the end to kind of take the best parts about each wine that they like and add them together to kind of bring everything into one wine, which is really, really cool, really interesting. And I've seen people blend multiple barrels together or half stainless, half barrel. Um, You know, it's not an uncommon thing, but uh, ceramic and clay pots are not incredibly common. So it's it's really interesting to see all four being used in one wine. Um, We also had the 2018 Lindenhurst cab, which I wasn't familiar with the Lindenhurst cabs before. Um, but it's, it's really, uh, uh, really fun wine. Um, I would say that it's a little lighter in style than their state cab. It's also made of a blend of a bunch of different fruit from a bunch of different places, as well as a uh, Bextoffer Tokelon, uh, fruit. They have fruit from, uh, uh, Knights Valley, I believe. Um, so really complex, really round cab dominant. And then we also got to try the 2017 estate Cabernet. Uh, which is a very classic Napa Cab. It wasn't incredibly rich or opulent or over-the-top. It was just incredibly polished. Obviously, it's a big wine cab in most representations is a big wine. Um, So it was really great to get to try the two side-by-side and see how fruit that's grown at one location versus fruit that's grown in multiple locations can be expressed even though they're both cab-dominant wines. So shortly after Spotswood, uh, we kind of didn't really have another plan on where to go, and we were just going to kind of 
you know, try to drop in somewhere, go to a tasting room uh, or something like that. Um, but what we actually ended up doing was calling somebody that we know from Pride Mountain. And she goes, yeah, when do you guys want to visit? And we said, well, we were curious if we could visit in about 30 minutes. So uh, forewarning, don't do that. Most of the time, it doesn't happen. Right now during, you know, still COVID, um, you need two to three weeks uh, for most places to make a reservation. Uh, If you're in the industry, it's a little bit easier if you know somebody and they can kind of squeeze you in. Um, But for the most part, you can't just walk up to wineries. So we knew that we weren't going to be able to just get into any winery we wanted to. We were kind of expecting to go to one of the larger ones that has tasting rooms that are open to public. Um, But we just, you know, through a Hail Mary, and uh, uh, the young lady that we know from Pride Mountain said, yeah, yeah, you want to stop by today? Sure, stop by. So we go, we show up, um, we're greeted, we go outside, they give us little bottles of water, it's a little bit warmer, and they said, you know, we'll be right out to start the tour, poured us a little bit of uh, a little bit of um, uh, Chardonnay just to kind of get us started. And we go out and we're standing there amongst the vineyards, well, in the front, and they have vines right on the other side of the, um, the banister, the railing. And uh, we're standing there and we're just kind of looking around and just kind of decompressing after the drive over. Uh, and they come out and they kind of whisk us away onto this tour. And uh, they say, well, we're starting in the caves. So that's always kind of fun. Not every winery has caves. Um, caves are kind of a hassle to build. Um, a lot of wineries will have caves that were built before they were there or something like that. Um, but, uh, but Pride Mountain Vineyards, uh, was never, was not always Pride Mountain Vineyards. It was actually known as Summit Ranch back in 1885. And they built the caves in 1890 before the, uh, before they ever sold to Pride Mountain. It's located 2,100 feet above sea level. The, the reason I say that, the reason that this is important is generally higher elevation means cooler climate. And cooler climate generally means a little less fruit presence in the wine. So normally it's very hot, very, very warm climate. Think of like a Lodi Zinfandel. They're generally a little bit more fruit driven and a little bit more fruit forward, a little jammy, if you will. Uh, Whereas a cooler climate, like, you know, old world wines, uh, generally have a little bit more um, earth driven. They're generally a little bit more uh, acidic and generally a little less uh, fruit dominant. Also, the alcohol content can kind of be uh, a little bit skewed, the sugar content of the wine. Um, The elevation has to do with when the grapes ripen and when the grapes are picked. So 2,100 feet above sea level is actually pretty high, especially considering uh, California wine growing region. So so that's important. That's one of the big, one of the cool things. Um, The other cool thing is when you park in their parking lot, there's this giant brick line that runs down in between the parking lot and cuts the parking lot in half. And then there's this beautiful stone archway and it says Pride Mountain. And that same brick pathway cuts right down the middle of that as well. And then come to find out that the reason that giant brick pathway is there is it's actually the county line of Napa and Sonoma. So most of the time they can't put the estate designant on their wine because their estate isn't in uh, there because they're generally sourcing grapes from multiple locations and their vineyards fall into both Sonoma and Napa. So they can't say this is a Napa wine. This is a Sonoma wine if it's blended from both. So what they're doing is, is they're just putting the designate Napa Sonoma on the front of it or Sonoma Napa on the front of it. So that's really cool. It's super unique. Um, it's really interesting. So they have caves they're right on the border of uh, Napa and Sonoma, like literally straddling the border, and they're 2,100 feet above sea level. As if that wasn't cool enough, uh, they also have a female winemaker, uh, just like um, uh, uh, you know a lot of wineries, but some of my favorite wineries have female winemakers. Uh, female winemakers, I, I always say, have a little bit more palate and a little bit less pride. Um, so... <laughs> So uh, we actually got to meet her very briefly. She was quite busy. Uh, and her name's Sally Johnson. Uh, she's been there for 15 years at Pride Mountain, Val- uh, Pride Mountain Vineyards. And she was very lovely, uh, very uh, focused, uh, quite intense. She was uh, on a mission, let's just say. Um, so when we got done, we got to go taste through a lot of things. 
And uh, throughout the cave tour, actually, they had these small stations set up, which was really fun. And we would go to stop at a station and there would be a glass and they would pour us some wines. And then we could either drink the wines or dump the wines or carry them with us through the cave. And we'd walk through the cave and they'd give us some history or give us some information about one wine. And then we'd get to another station. You dump your wine or drink your wine or spit your wine or whatever. You get the next wine. And then they start talking about that as well. Well, the whole time that I was here, all I wanted to taste was Pride Mountain Syrah. Pride Mountain Syrah is a wine that's considered to be kind of like a unicorn. It's very special. It's very uh, uh, sought after and kind of like a little bit more of a geeky wine consumer uh, category. And I'd had it one time. And I'm not sure if the bottle was slightly off or if it had been open for a couple days, but it wasn't really showing what what I thought it was. But when all of my friends and all of my mentors were telling me how amazing Pride Mountain Syrah is... I knew I had to try it again. So we went through the tour. All I could think was, man, I really want to I really want to be able to like like taste Syrah. Where's the Syrah? Where's the Syrah? So finally I asked and she goes, "Oh, I'll bring it out in a little bit." But some of the wines that we got to try were uh, the Chardonnay. We got to try Viognier, Cabernet Merlot. They had a young cab. Uh, it still needed to be aged for another year in the barrel. But we got to try it anyways, which was really amazing to kind of see how it was going to develop because we also had the same cab that was a year older. So um, cool to kind of see where the wine is heading. And they also had this really interesting thing that I had never had called Mistel. And Mistel de Viognier is what they had. So it's a Viognier, which is a, a white wine. Um, and then they're taking a, the juice from the Viognier, not fermenting it. And then they're mixing it with a neutral spirit. So probably they're taking Viognier, crushing it, distilling it into a brandy or a grappa, and then adding it to fresh juice, uh, which is really interesting. Um, And then finally, along with all the other wines that we got to try, we got to taste the Syrah. And it's really, really a special wine. Uh, I highly recommend it. We uh, We bought a few bottles. Um, we're going to lay on them for a while and just kind of hang on to them. Uh, but they also had a lot of other really cool wines there that you could buy. They had a whole library selection. But one of the things that really jumped out to us was they had a Magnum bottle, which is a, two bottles of wine, a large bottle. So most standard bottles are 750 milliliter. It's 1.5 liters and not like the, you know, lesser expensive wines that you get at the grocery store. It was Pride Mountain Merlot. Not only was it Pride Mountain Merlot and a Magnum, it was a 2003. So 19-year-old wine, 18-year-old wine in a Magnum bottle was so exciting, and the price was just unbeatable. Let's say it was less than $150 a bottle. I I don't know how anybody could pass it up. It was really, really, really cool. Um, And so we buy it, and then she comes out, and not only that, uh, but the bottles have been autographed by uh, not Sally Johnson, the winemaker, but the winemaker that was there before her, which is so cool because you've got a signed magnum of 2003 Merlot from Pride Mountain, and it was less than $150 a bottle. It was really, really an amazing experience. Um, so that day in particular is a really interesting day. So I woke up really early. We went to Spotswood, which is about an hour and a half drive, hour and 15 minute drive. Then we drove for about 30 minutes and then finally ended up at Pride Mountain. And then we drove back to the city. Uh, I dropped one of my friends off. I went with one of my other friends, had a martini, and then went to a work dinner. So uh, at work, um, we were celebrating um, an anniversary of the restaurant being open and also doing a team building exercise. A lot of new management has come on from one of our other restaurants that closed, and they're kind of stepping into different roles. Um, and we've all been under the same roof. And you know, there's some new schools of thought and old schools of thought. And sometimes there's a little bit of an overlap. Sometimes there's a little bit of a clash. So uh, they propose that they take us all to dinner and have us all eat and drink together, which I'm uh, never, never against. So for dinner, they took us to Kokari in San Francisco. And I don't know why. For the longest time, I had never been to Kokari. I didn't know where it was or anything about it. Um, it's not that far uh, from um, several of the places that I've worked. 
uh, but it's uh, a little on the outskirts of the financial district near the Embarcadero. And for the longest time, I thought it was Japanese food. I don't know. It's dumb, I guess. I just didn't really think about it. Well, it turns out it's actually Greek, which was really interesting. I'm a huge fan of Syrah. As I just said, Pride Mountain Syrah is a really, really fantastic wine. Uh, but um, Greek food, generally, uh, they serve lamb. And one of the very classic wine pairings for lamb is Syrah. So I was incredibly excited to be able to um, to go there. And not only go there, but they told me, Chris, you're in charge of ordering wine. So there's five of us. One, two, three, four, five. There's five of us. One wasn't drinking. So we didn't order as much wine as we would have liked to, or as much wine as I would have liked to, I guess. Uh, but I feel like I kept it at a pretty reasonable price range. I didn't, you know, blow the doors off, but they said, you know, money's not really an option. We don't want you to bankrupt us, but, you know, buy some nice stuff for everybody. This is a special occasion. We want to celebrate. So I said, sure. So I looked through the menu. I was really impressed. The wine list there is um, not incredibly large. It's not over the top. Um, it's just really well put together and all of it is kind of designed to pair with the food. It's not at all like a prideful wine list where I just put on whatever wines I want because I love those wines. It's not at all a wine list that's kind of just designed to sell to the masses. It's a wine list that if you close your eyes, spun around and circle three times and put your finger on the paper, you would pick a wine that would go with the food. So if you have a chance here in San Francisco and you want to have a really nice dinner, go to Kokari. Um, they had a lot of really fun wines, but the wines that I finally decided on uh, or kind of moved into um, were as follows. So Pierre-Yves Colin Marais. I know that's a little bit of a mouthful. Uh, Pierre-Yves is his name. Uh, Colin Marais, um, his father's name uh, was um, uh, Mark Colleen. Um, of Domaine Marc Collin, uh, and uh, he was, Pierre-Yves was the winemaker there between 1994 and 2005, uh, so he made wine for his dad. Um, they make uh, white Burgundy, so white Burgundy is Chardonnay, um, coming from the Burgundy region of France, um, and both uh, Domaine Marc Collin and Pierre-Yves uh, focus on Chassagne Montrachet. Um, they have other, you know, wines available, uh, but that's kind of what they're known for, uh, in the Cote de Bone. Um, so we went and I didn't want to start off with anything too crazy, uh, but I wanted to start off with a wine that pairs well with the food. So I actually got the, uh, 2019 Pierre-Yves Colin Marais Bourgogne. Uh, Bourgogne is generally a term that's used, uh, it's a declassified term is kind of what they say, meaning that it's not Chassagne Montrachet, meaning it doesn't come from one region. It's a blend of wines from, a, uh, several different regions, two different regions, or sometimes a winery will just say, you know, I have too much of this at too much of a price point. It's expensive. I want to have some less expensive stuff. And sometimes they'll declassify wines themselves. Um, not the case here. What they're doing is, is they're actually, um, they're actually blending together a uh, wine from St. Aubin as well as a uh, wine from Poligny Montrachet. Uh, about 65%, 35%. That's still 100% Chardonnay, uh, but coming from different regions, different towns. And I have, I don't know if I've used this before on this podcast, but the same grape grown in two different regions is like humans being from two different towns, right? Your environment impacts you. What you're surrounded by impacts you. The weather impacts you. And sometimes when you meet somebody from a different place, you don't always see eye to eye on everything or you are really interested in something about that person or something about that person is it draws you in because they are so different than you. So what you're doing here is, is you're actually taking the best of both worlds and you're living in both towns or, you know, you're, you're getting the best of each personality, if you will. So St. Aubin and Pliny Montrachet are blended together. Uh, to create this wine, a Bourgogne, again, a declassified white Burgundy. Uh, the vines are about 40 years old, and they use native yeast. Native yeast um, just kind of affects the fermentation of the wine and the evolution of the wine. Um, people are kind of moving back into it, and generally in the old world wines, uh, which is you know, normally Italy, France, Spain, Germany. Um, 
they like to use native yeast a lot. Um, but sometimes, you know, wineries will just wash the yeast off and use a commercial yeast or an artificial yeast to kind of control the fermentation and stabilize it and make it a little bit more um, uh, predictable so they kind of know what finished product they're getting. But the wine was really amazing, really light, um, minerality-driven, lean. Normally, Chassagne Montrachet can be a little bit more full in style, can be a little bit more opulent. That's the town that it comes from, Chassagne Montrachet. But generally, the wines they make there are a little bit more in like a rounder style. But the Bourgogne was really nice. It was really lean. And on the wine menu, it was $85 a bottle, which for four people splitting the wine is really not that bad. But we didn't stop there. This was kind of one of those dinners where I got to go and I got to buy all of my favorite names in one meal, which is not normally what happens. Normally, I go to dinner and I buy a bottle of wine. But when there's a lot of people, there's more people that can drink. It's easier to, easier to drink more. Um, not to say I haven't, you know, drank a bottle by myself or two bottles by myself before. Uh, but, you know, that was way back when, before open heart surgery. Can't do that anymore. I'm, I'm supposed to have a glass of wine for now until I'm recovered. And then I can have, you know, a little bit more. But they don't want me overdoing it right now. So uh, trying to behave, trying to be a good boy. Okay, so the first wine was from Burgundy, France. Uh, now we're moving into Italy. So in northwestern, I'm sorry, northeastern Italy. Uh, so um, at the very top of the boot on the top right side, uh, there's the region of Veneto. Uh, and in Veneto, they make a lot of wine in the region of the Valpolicella. Um, Giuseppe Quintarelli, that's, that's the name of the winery. That's uh, actually the name of the man, uh, Giuseppe. Um, uh, started making wine there. Uh, it's very, very well known. Giuseppe Quintarelli is an incredible producer that's uh, revered in, in the production of Venetian wines or wines from Veneto. And part of the reason is, is because they hold back their wines for a really long time. And what that means is, is not for a really long time, but what that means is, is it, it, right now it's 2021. Most wineries you go to are selling you 2018 wines, reds, whites. 2019, 2020, some whites, some rosés right now are 2021. Well, not right now, but you know, you'll be getting 2021 wines before the end of the year. So what they're actually doing at this winery is they're holding on to the wines until they think that they're showing the absolute best. So the wine that I ordered was Giuseppe Quintarelli uh, Primo Fiore. And Primo Fiore is uh, one of their wines that I really enjoy. Uh, it's a little bit unique. Um, in that it's not made in the same style as their other wines. Um, unfortunately, they were sold out. So the server brought over and said, I'm very sorry. What I have here is 2011 Giuseppe Quintarelli Valpolicella Classico Superiore. So that's a big, big mouthful. So let me just break it down. Valpolicella is the region that it comes from. Classico mean that it's made in a classic style. There's generally each region has a little bit more of a a very specific uh, legality behind using that name. And superiore in Italian wines generally means a higher alcohol content. And they don't overdo it. There's no 16% ABVs. I mean, there may be some, but for the most part, they're not overdoing it. But generally, a little bit of a higher alcohol content gets you to the superiore um, uh, classification. So what they're doing is, is they're doing this, this method here. In Veneto, they're incredibly well known for a wine called Amarone. And Amarone is a wine that they harvest the grapes and then they take the grapes and they dry them out on racks. And when they dry them out on racks, they turn into raisins. Well, then when you juice them, the juice is so much more concentrated. So for a bottle of Amarone, it takes about four times as many grapes to make it because they're drying the grapes and then juicing them and you're getting this really concentrated juice. Well, then there's these wines called Rapasso. And Rapasso means they're taking the leftover grapes after you crush them and then they're running fresh juice through it. So they're crushing more grapes that haven't been dried, and they're running them through these old dried grapes. And as they're running through, they're picking up some of those really, really wonderful characteristics from the dried grapes. So it's really nice um, way of, let's say, using your waste, um, but let's also say adding some complexity to a wine um, in just a little bit of a different way. In Italy, this is not common practice. There's not a lot of drying going on, except in the region of Veneto. There is some, in every region, obviously, there's, you know, probably somebody does something. 
but this is one of the only regions in the world that's known for dried grapes. Um, they're, that's, that's their, their wheelhouse. Um, so Giuseppe Quintarelli is, is kind of like the king of Veneto or was the king of Veneto. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2012. He was 84 years old. And since his family has taken over the estate, so it's still a family owned and operated winery. Um, the wines are really, really refined, really precise, um, really incredible wines. The, the 2011 Valpolicella Classico Superiore is a blend of 55% Corvina, which is the grape, not Corvina the fish, 30% Rondinella, which is also a grape, and then they're using a, the last 15% and they're blending together a whole slew of other grapes, Cabernet Sauvignon, um, uh, Nebbiolo, Croatina. Uh, they're kind of mixing together a whole bunch of stuff uh, to add that last little bit. Think about if you have a steak. It's a really beautiful steak. You've added some salt to it, and it's really good. But you think you could add just something else, a touch of something else. Maybe a little black pepper. Sure. Maybe a little garlic. Okay. Maybe you're just going to baste it with butter. All of those last little touches is what they save these little bit of percentages for, is really to just kind of add a little bit more finish to the wine or add a little more complexity so when you hear, you know, 3% this, 15% this, it maybe doesn't seem like a lot, but in the overall, it does have an impact on the wine. So the initial wine that I tried to order was $120 a bottle. The wine that they brought out was $200 a bottle. We ordered it anyways. I knew that it was going to be more expensive, uh, and it was phenomenal. This is incredible. I, I, it's not every day I get to drink wine from Giuseppe Quintarelli. Even me, the reluctant psalm, or the heartbreak psalm in this episode, uh, I don't drink Giuseppe Cantarelli very frequently at all. So uh, it was really, really fun. And then we went into another amazing wine. Uh, we were moving into our main courses, and so I really wanted to get some Syrah. And what I went for was uh, Cote Roti. So in France, there's the region of Rhone. And Rhone is named after the Rhone Valley, Rhone River. Uh, the river cuts through. It's kind of like a north to south um, uh, valley. And there's it's separated into northern Rhone and southern Rhone. That's what people kind of call it. And in northern Rhone, there's generally wines that are made from 100% of one grape. And in the southern Rhone, they're generally blending the wines with other grapes. So in the northern Rhone, there's the region of Cote Roti. And in Cote Roti, they make 100% wines made from Syrah. So again, we're having lamb, so I need Syrah. And what better wine than uh, Domaine Yves Cuiron? Uh, Yves Cuiron, uh, Domaine Yves Cuiron is a winery that I'm familiar with, but I haven't had the experience of tasting quite a lot of. Uh, they have a Condru as well, which is 100% Viognier wine that they produce. Um, and they're really, really like fairly well known in, in kind of a little bit more of a culty sense. Uh, if you're really into wine and you're really into Rhone wines, those wines are the wines to know. Um, very small production. This The 2012 is the wine that we had. Uh, and then they have a few different skews, but I had the uh, Medinier. And the Medinier is just, I think, a vineyard designate that they're doing. Um, and in those vineyard designates, you're sometimes seeing older vines. Sometimes you're seeing younger vines. Um, sometimes you're seeing earlier harvest, higher elevation, all things that kind of are creating a little bit more of a unique wine. That's why this is important. So Syrah and lamb are slam dunk pairing almost all the time. Petite Syrah and lamb can sometimes go together too. Sometimes it can be a little bit too big. Um, and in, in Northern Rhone, the hillside is incredibly steep. And in the wineries that Yves Cuiron owns, they're, they're some of the steepest. The steep hill is important for rain. When the rain falls, it kind of just runs down the side of the hill. It's also important for sunlight. If the hill is facing west and the sun rises in the east, that means that the grapes will be in the shade almost until, you know, 11 or 12 when the sun makes its way up and then the grapes are getting a lot of afternoon heat. Well, if the hills are facing east, then, you know, inversely, a lot of daytime light and heat and a lot of evening cool. So uh, the steep slopes just kind of exaggerate that a little bit. So Domaine Yves Cuiron, 
Yves Quiron is the gentleman that's making the wines, um, and it's a third-generation winery. So I'm not sure if his dad and his grandpa were Yves Quiron or if he took over the winery and kind of changed the name. Not 100% sure on that. Couldn't find the answer. Uh, but a fairly small winery in consideration to, say, some of the other wineries that we were talking about. Um, when uh, Yves Quiron took over uh, from in, in 1987... Um, he started off with 35 hectares. A hectare is a measurement of land. Uh, it's like three acres or something like that. So I, I have, don't worry, I have the conversions. Don't worry about doing it yourself. Uh, 3.5 hectares, uh, 8.6 acres. Um, and then now uh, they have 59 hectares and 196 acres. I don't know how that mathematically works out because it doesn't seem <laughs> doesn't seem quite as accurate, but that's what the internet said. So, you know, we're we're just going to we're going to ride that wave. Um the uh uh, uh Medinier, uh the the coat roti that we had uh, was first produced by them in 1994. Um they're generally going for a very classic Syrah style wine. They're not trying to produce anything, not trying to reinvent the wheel. And when we tried it, it was perfect. 2012 has just enough age that it's not super big, super powerful. It's kind of leaned out a little bit. Um, it's a very traditional Syrah in the sense that it kind of had a little bit of a, a meatiness, a little smokiness to it. It had raspberry thyme, had a little bit of coffee. It was really, really, really a, a phenomenal wine. Um, this one also came in at $200 a bottle, so definitely not an everyday drinker. Uh, but if you're going to a nice anniversary dinner at Kokari in San Francisco and you want a nice bottle of wine that's going to pair with your lamb, any of the wines from Yves Quiron are, are going to be right up your alley. So then we finished. Uh, we finished our dinner um, with uh, Vinsanto, which is a dessert wine that I was only familiar with uh, from Italy. Vinsanto is generally a wine that they're making in Tuscany, uh, the same place that they're producing Brunellos and Chiantis. They generally make Vinsanto, which is kind of a sweet dessert wine. Um, so we're at a Greek restaurant, and I haven't ordered any Greek wine because I'm not incredibly comfortable with Greek wine. The alphabet kind of trips me up. I don't even know how to pronounce any of the names. Uh, so I finally decide, well, it's a Greek dessert wine, and it's a Vinsanto. That's interesting. We'll try it. So it turns out, uh, as I was told afterwards, Vinsanto apparently originated in Greece. So uh, that's why they have Vinsanto. Um, Estate Arguayos, uh 2012 Vinsanto. Um, the Vinsanto itself is aged in barrels for four years. And what that does is uh, kind of like whiskey. It allows for a little bit of an oxygen exchange. Uh, it allows the wine to develop a little bit more and evolve. Um, the Winery was founded in 1903 in Santorini, Greece. Uh, they're on a fourth generation, so each family member, each generation has done everything they can until the day that they can't do it anymore. Uh, if you consider the fact that it's uh, 118 years since they were founded and they're only on a fourth generation. so um, The soil there is really interesting because it's, it's incredibly unique soil content. Uh, and the reason that is is because it's immune to phylloxera. For anybody that doesn't know, phylloxera is essentially a, a parasite. Um, let's think of lice in your hair, but it gets in the vine, it gets in the roots of the grapes, and it can kill the grapes. So uh, they've never experienced phylloxera there because the soil composition is not uh, suitable for phylloxera to live. So that's really interesting. They have a lot of really old grapevines, a lot of rich history there where they never lost um, their grapes, like. Many wine countries, uh, many wine producing countries actually suffered uh, phylloxera loss. Uh, France, Italy, Spain, America was devastated by it as well. Um, so Greece didn't actually suffer through that. So that's that's an interesting thing. Um, the uh, uh, grape must, uh, they actually take um, the leftover grapes after they crush them and after they ferment them, and they use that to fertilize their soil which also helps with the amazing uh, uh, soil composition. And all of their vineyards that they're doing here are all mule uh, plowed. 
So they're using mules, they're not using machines, uh, which is really great. They're kind of uh, preserving the integrity of the soil and the land and really just kind of taking care of it. They're being a, a great steward or a great shepherd to, uh, to, to the land. So uh, this was an amazing bottle of dessert wine uh, with a lot of like honeyed fruit, orange zest, apricot. Um, it was really good, um, really awesome, especially with the desserts that we had. Uh, it was $120 a bottle and it was fantastic. And then the final wine is a wine that I had after open heart surgery. So I had open heart surgery on July 6th and uh, that was a Tuesday. And then on Saturday, they sent me home. And then on Sunday, I was at home. And Monday, I was at home. And, uh, you know, I have been home ever since. It feels like I, I don't get out of here. I, I leave every day. I go on a little walk. But I, I, it's so weird to not be at work again. You know, we were all shut down for COVID too. But, but to kind of be in my own secondary quarantine is kind of, or third quarantine. Because, you know, we here in SF, we closed down in December 2020 as well. Um, so, so I'm on my own third quarantine. So a little... Uh, mentally exhausting. Um, but anyways, I had some really amazing nurses that came to visit at the house and, and look after me. Um, I have all my amazing roommates that helped keep an eye on me. And, uh, you know, all in all, it was great. Well, I think it was eight days after I was home. So let's say two weeks after my open heart surgery and the cardiologist is, uh, on a call with me or on a video call with me. And I finally just said, hey, like, I just got to know, when can I drink wine again? And he goes, oh, like a glass of wine? I go, yeah, or more. And he goes, well, a glass of wine, you could have it now. I mean, you could have had it a week ago. And I'm just like, oh, my God, this whole time I've been sitting here, you mean I could have been supplementing my my pain and, and mental strife with alcohol? Like, what, what, what's the point? What, why have I just been sitting here? Uh, so... You know, that being said, I, I finish the call, I, I go to my room, and I grab a bottle off the shelf uh, that was dropped off to me as a sample, and I just dove right in, and it was amazing. As somebody whose career and somebody whose life is focused around tasting things, not being able to taste something as complex as wine, didn't, it wasn't unbearable, but it, it wasn't pleasant. So being able to taste my first wine again after open heart surgery was really special. Uh, and also because I could only have one glass and I, I wasn't celebrating with anybody, I'm always kind of cheap when it's just myself drinking. I have a lot of really fantastic wine, but it's something that I'm, I'm always saying, oh, I'm saving it for an occasion. I'm saving it for an occasion. I'm saving it for an occasion. And then I never end up drinking it. And uh, so I'm always a little cheap with myself. I, I try not to open anything too crazy for myself. But um, but I just grabbed this bottle off the shelf. It's 2018 uh, Cudillo de Bocastel. Uh, Bocastel is a really famous winery in uh, the Southern Rhone. We were talking about Northern Rhone earlier in Syrah. Now we're talking about Southern Rhone. Um, I just grabbed this bottle. I think it retails at like 28 bucks a bottle. So, you know, pretty affordable. Um, really, really fantastic wine. Uh, Bocastel is kind of the king of Southern Rhone. Um, and the king of Chateauneuf de Pop. And Chateauneuf de Pop is a region uh, in the Southern Rhone. So, this wine, the Acudelo de Bocassel, um, is a Cote de Rhone. So, kind of uh, a Cote de Rhone means a, a blend from Rhone. So, like we were talking about Bourgogne earlier, that's a declassified version. Uh, Cote de Rhone is a declassified version as well. So, it's not Chateauneuf de Pop, it's not Cote Roti, it's a Cote de Rhone. So a, a blend, if you will, uh, and not uh, from one particular region. Uh, so the grapes uh, that they're using are Grenache, Syrah, and Mouvedre. Um, generally, you hear the term, or maybe you haven't. I'm sorry, I'm in the industry, and maybe you're not if you're listening. Uh, but you may or may not have heard the term GSM. And a GSM is a Grenache, Syrah, Mouvedre blend. Very classic blend from Southern Rhone. A uh, very classic blend uh, uh, in Australia as well. And actually in Australia is where they came up with the term GSM. Um, so we all use GSM a little bit now. We say it you know, here and there, GSM, GSM. Um, uh, 
so anyways, th this is a GSM blend, and then they also add a little Cinso, which is just another great, again, 10%. They're just kind of adding it in there just to add a slight bit more uh, complexity. But a really, really fantastic wine. It was red fruit, spice dominant, had these really fantastic silky tannins, a little chocolate, slight herbaceousness, and it was balanced with this like really beautiful acidity. Um, the winery is really amazing because they're the leading organic grower in Southern Rhone, uh, and they uh, the family purchased uh, the uh, the Bocassel in 1909, and it's been a fifth generation uh, now working in the winery. So they've been around for a really long time. They're one of the bigger houses in Southern Rhone, and to think that they're still one of the leading organic growers in Southern Rhone is really amazing. They're they're taking uh, the bull by the horns. They're being very responsible, looking after the environment, and, and kind of just, you know, I think leading by example. Uh, the, the winery is really cool as well because they own a ton of other stuff. They own Tablas Creek, which is a really fun uh, winery out here in California that does a lot of uh, Rhone blends and actually has grapes that were brought over from Rhone. And they also own Miraval. If you haven't heard of Miraval, it's one of the really big, really popular rosés that's out there. I think it was uh, Brad and Angelina's rosé, but they were, you know, part owners or whatever of it. Um, I may be mistaken with another rosé. I don't keep up with celebrities as much as I keep up with wine. Uh, so, you know, something like that. But yeah, so uh, Bocastel has been around for a long time. Cudelota Bocastel is one of their uh, side projects or one of their other estates, if you will. So a little bit long-winded. I know this is a little bit of a longer podcast, but I just wanted to get everybody caught up with what's been going on. Um, I'll dive into my wine list at some point. Um, I'll pull a copy of it and kind of go through some of the wines and and uh, talk about some stuff. I'll I'll get back on at one point, talk a little bit more about uh, heart surgery. Um, I recorded some videos after the surgery as well that I'm going to try to kind of create a YouTube page and put it up on the YouTube page as well. So you guys can kind of see me in my recovery process. Hopefully it'll help somebody else. Or if you guys know anybody that's struggling uh, with heart condition or somebody that may be getting open heart surgery soon, or somebody that has a family history of heart issues, uh, this is always something to kind of look out for, you know, considering that one to 2% of the population has it. Uh, you know, the more information you have, uh, the better decisions you make. Um, knowledge is power, as they say. Uh, and hopefully this was a very um, educational podcast and you're leaving very powerful. Well, uh, yeah, I guess that's it for me for now. And uh, until next time, cheers and uh, enjoy your wine.